You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. Hey, everyone. If you like this podcast, you should check out the full finance journey at realvision.com slash rvpod to get the full view of what Real Vision is all about. A video on-demand platform you can watch anywhere. Our members get daily videos and analysis, plus access to more than 3,000 videos for beginners and experienced investors alike, and live events online. You'll join the most thoughtful community in finance. More than 300,000 people who trust Real Vision to be the anchor to truth in the financial world. To get started, visit realvision.com slash rvpod and use the promo code PODCAST10 to get 10% off our essential membership for your first year. Enjoy the show. Hi, everyone. Welcome to the Real Vision Daily Briefing. It's Wednesday, July 6, 2022. I'm Maggie Lake, and here with me today is Darius Dale, founder of 42 Macro. Hi, Darius. Hey, what's up, Maggie? How are you? I'm doing okay. You know, Welcome it was a back. really interesting session today, and I'm plugging back in from having sort of been unplugged in a way for a week. So we see stocks advancing, bond yields moving higher, energy lower, and investors really sifting through. It seems like the Fed minutes and some data coming in, and all I heard about all day long and splashed all over the place was recession. So, mm-hmm. you know, let's start with those Fed minutes. Anything jump out at you as different or interesting that would have caused any kind of market reaction? Uh, yeah, two things in particular, uh, although I'm not sure the market reaction today reflected those two things, but uh, I'd say the number one thing that really caught my attention was just how concerned the Fed was uh, about inflation relative to growth. There was 90 mentions of the word inflation in the Fed minutes, zero mention of the word recession. Uh, this goes back to something we've been talking about on the program in terms of the Fed only having a singular mandate or sort of a dual mandate within the context of one of the sleeves, which is getting inflation back to target, and more importantly, restoring credibility uh, of the institution after last year's botched transitory call. And then secondarily, I'd say, you know, sort of the the one thing I think that was sort of um, shocking to me is how sort of open and honest they were, at least in the discussion, about this sort of concept of a Fed put. And and I'll read the quote specifically because I think it it sort of sums it up better than I could with my own words, which is, uh, many participants judged that a significant risk now facing the committee was that elevated inflation could become entrenched if the public began to question the resolve of the committee to adjust the stance of policy as warranted. Translation, you guys all think there's a Fed put. There is no Fed put. We need to get inflation back under control. And so that, to me, those are the two most important takeaways from the Fed uh, FOMC meetings. Yeah, great flag, Darius, because when you're when you're listening to the Fed, you know, it can seem very wonky and no one hurt. You know, you don't exactly they're not going to say, hey, you think we're going to come bail you out if if we see a downturn? We're not. But that is what they were saying. And you've been really consistent saying, listen, I think people are underestimating their resolve. They think they're behind the curve. They think they're going to waver. They're not. This is a this is a Fed who's singularly focused on inflation. Um, and, And we are sort of seeing seeing that increasingly now and hearing that from them. But it's interesting that the, the the economy, I still think there are people out there, maybe they don't think they care about asset markets and saving the stock market, but but a lot of people are saying, hey, it's hard to think the Fed's going to continue 
to raise rates into a recession. Maybe we are already in one. Um, you know, we did get some data out today, right? We had services ISM. Yeah. It dipped to a two-year low, new orders down, employment component down, but it's still sitting at 55, which 100%. would it, which would suggest expansion. So how should we be looking at some of this? Where are you in, in you know, are we in a recession? How, how do we need to think about growth? No, we we talked about this last week. It's, it's very unlikely that we are in recession currently, although the probability for that outcome continues to rise, particularly when you look at it on a next 12-month time horizon perspective. I think as we get into the summer months, at least what our model's been projecting all, all along, all year, which is when the pace of deceleration really starts to pick up to the downside, that's when you'll start to really see recession fears get you know incrementally priced into markets. I think Q2 earnings season could be a kind of a commencement of that process, but certainly it's something we expect uh, to last into the fall. Um, so just on the ISM services data point, um, you know, sort of just on from a levels perspective, much more healthy than what we saw uh, out of the ISM manufacturing, which is pretty much of a dog of a report last Friday. Um, but, you know, just in terms of the employment component, because to me, I think the employment component in both of these reports, ISM uh, employment lowest since August 20, uh, ISM services employment lowest since July 20, that's exactly where the Fed wants to see the sort of dissipation, the air being let out of the balloon that is the U.S. economy. Um, you know, the, the, the labor market itself, just in terms of the like signaling recession, continues to run very, very hot. It continues to overheat. Uh, Brian, if you pull up a chart, uh, I have a chart for you. Uh, the labor market is cooling rapidly, uh, but not rapidly enough. And that's the key takeaway. Um, there's a couple of statistics I want you to focus on in that chart, which is sort of the second cluster of bars, which is average hourly earnings at a 5.6%. This is data through the, Mar the May uh, jobs report. We're going to get the, 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 the June jobs report on Friday. So uh, this will be updated as of Friday. But um, with the data that we have in hand, we have average hourly earnings accelerating on a three-month annualized basis up at 5.6%. That compares to a sort of 2015 to 2019 trend of 2.8%. So we're going, we're running at a double in terms of wage inflation relative to the, the pre-COVID trend. And then the last cluster of bars, which is probably more relevant um, when you think about sort of um, identifying where we are in the business cycle, which is you know aggregate income growth from the private sector, which is running at 8% on a three-month annualized basis. That compares. That's basically a double relative to what it was in the prior in, in the 2015 to 2019 trend. So. Um, the, the Fed is going to continue to take a, a chainsaw, weed whacker, aluminum bat, whatever metaphor you want to use to this economy because they're looking at lagging statistics like that and like inflation and not sort of doing the forward looking work that we investors are doing to understand where the economy is likely to end up. Let's call it six, nine, 12 months from now. Yeah. So Darius, does it, the, the, the wage stuff, and we do talk about the labor market all the time, we have these wages, but if they're getting eaten away by inflation, Will it kind of fuel that demand that's going to make the economy run hot? Or, or is the Fed, again, sort of not, not really just focused on the, the, the danger of the inflation and, and not making that connection? Real earnings are not, are, are not high enough to overcompensate for inflation and, and fuel runaway demand, are they? No, they're not. They're, they're, so when you look at a disposable personal income basis, you know, we're still tracking negative on both a year-over-year -year and three-month annualized basis for, for earnings, you know, with the 12-month moving average per chance and on something like disposable personal incomes down over 4% year-over-year. So that's a that's a pretty telling statistic in terms of the level of demand in the economy. But what I think is also incrementally telling, and we got this data last Thursday, it's a little bit lagged because the PCE data is, uh, comes out on the full-month lag, but uh, the May PCE data confirmed that the U.S. economy has ground to a halt with respect to consumer spending. You know, 0.2% on a three-month annualized basis for headline consumer spending 
goods PCE and real goods real goods consumption at minus 1.4% through month annualized. And then you have real services consumption, which is we're supposed to technically be in the middle of a services sector boom, is mm-hmm. actually slowed from a growth rate of 4.7% on a year-over-year basis to 1% on a three-month annualized basis. So we know those numbers are going to head lower in the coming months. So this goes back to something we've been talking about for a while now, going back to the Q1 of the, this year, which is, uh, Brian, if you put up the, another chart, I say you uh, for guidance accelerates the monetary policy transmission. Um, and this is something I think, you know, I'm not sure that every investor really understands this, but what's very new about this tightening cycle, and yes, this time is different, is the sort of aggression with which we're, the Fed is using its forward guidance function. I mean, forward guidance in and of itself is really something that's only been around for, let's call it, the prior, the, you know, the prior decade or so. And they're really stepping on that, 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 that lever or pulling that lever in this particular tightening cycle. So what this chart shows in the upper panel, the blue line just shows the real 10-year t- uh, treasury yield, nominal treasury yield divide, or deflated by the Cleveland Fed's 10-year forward inflation in- expectations index that gives you a long time series. And what you can see with those black dotted lines, those horizontal lines uh, denote, uh, is anytime we see something that looks like a two sigma shock on a trailing through your basis in this statistic, and there have been seven over the past, you know, since the 1980s, uh, you get a significant slowdown um, in economic growth. I'm just showing using the ISM manufacturing PMI as a, as a proxy, but, um, you know, those things are all highly correlated. So we're going to have a significant slowdown in economic growth. It is starting in, in the month of June. It's likely to materially accelerate to the downside as we get throughout Q3 and throughout Q4. So it's why do we see stocks rallying today, especially tech stocks? That would seem sort of counterintuitive to people, I think. Yeah, so that that's a fantastic question. So uh, we saw tech stocks rally today. We saw stocks uh, reverse yesterday on this sort of de- significant decline, this washout we're seeing uh, in crude oil prices, which we can touch on why mm-hmm. I think that's happening uh, right now. But the consensus narrative is that, hey, the U. The recession is really breaking down commodity prices. I mean, we've talked about this in our research for a while now. You know, we've seen industrial metals bearish from the perspective of our volatility, just momentum signal. Agriculture broke down a bearish recently as well. Crude oil may very well be on its way uh, to, to bearish fams as well. And you know, the consensus narrative out there is that hey, the U.S. economy is nearing recession. It's destroying energy demand, so the Fed's going to have to do less. We're seeing that reflected in money markets. Um, if you think about terminal Fed funds rate pricing, but more importantly the sort of pivot the Fed is likely to make on the other side of the terminal Fed funds rate, you're seeing a significant decline in euro dollar expectations, uh, euro dollar rate expectations. I think that's the wrong view. What's actually happening, in our opinion, in the commodities market is the China sort of zero COVID policy and Xi's renewed commitment uh, to maintaining that view or to maintaining that policy regime and ultimately sort of the the, the proliferation of rising case counts again and testing in Shanghai. Uh, you're getting it in Beijing. Omicron's now in Western China. And so the market is looking ahead and saying and, and removing whatever the China reopening premium was across many, many physical commodity markets and just you know taking that premium to zero effectively, because ultimately yeah. you know, the market realizes that China is going to be doing fits and starts from an economic perspective for the foreseeable future. Yeah, no, that's a great point. And that, that's, a, that's a huge issue that we're going to have to grapple with. And I think it's something that, you know, comes in and out of focus just because of everything else that's going on. Um, but but that is a major, that's another major setback for a big engine of growth for the global economy. Hey, everyone, we're going to take a quick break right now to hear a word from our partners. We'll be right back with more of the day's top analysis on the Real Vision Daily Briefing. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. 
Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with lips and ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L-I-B-S-Y-N-Ads.com. I'm curious if we go back to stocks, Darius. You have a chart. Um, earnings estimates remain out to lunch. Can we pull that up? There has been this sort of strange phenomenon that people are kind of sticking to their estimates, despite the fact that we are, you know, seeing expectations for slowing growth. And based on what you just said, like substantially slower growth as we head into the latter part of the year, what, do these estimates need to come down? And what does that mean to stocks? Or are they, are they looking through something that we need to understand? Uh, yeah, they, they need to, and they will come down. Um, particularly, you know, as we get into the second half of this year, I think they'll start to come down in the second quarter, depending on what company, based on what's ever you know transpired in their their P and L and Q two, is going to be forced to start issuing negative guidance. As most companies, most IR departments are not incentivized to sort of snitch on themselves. So um, we're going to see, you know, whatever company has that sort of significant degradation that we're seeing on a three month annualized basis across most of those economic statistics, those companies will have to raise their hand and say, guidance is good. We're going to have to cut down guidance. I mean, you know, look at facts at estimates. We're talking about 10% year over year earnings growth throughout the back half of this year. I mean, we'd be lucky to grow at all in earnings. It could be very easily have an earnings recession in the back half of this year if you factor in uh, 42 macro growth projections. But anyway, just getting back to this chart, the blue line just shows consensus next 12 months earnings per share estimates for the S&P 500. Uh, obviously, up and to the right, making new highs, have seen no degradation. Black line, just the S&P. What the red line shows is sort of the sort of implied net profit margin uh, estimate, as if you look at the sort of consensus sales, uh, sort of consensus earnings divided by consensus sales. And what you're seeing is in and around recession, you're talking about at least a 25, 20 to 25% reduction in forward profit margin estimates. Um, you had 25% in the uh, oh, oh, 2001 recession, which was by far the, or the smallest recession in U.S. history, uh, only down 30 basis points peak to trough. And you saw that decline 30, 38% in expectations terms uh, in the GFC, and then minus 21% in the sort of let's call it six-week recession we had uh, in COVID. We've seen no degradation in that red line off the cycle high. And so in our opinion, just from purely from a profit cycle perspective, it's very unlikely we've seen in earnings reset or, or an actual outright recession priced in, let alone an earnings recession. I know the buy side's are a lot lower than the sell side at this particular juncture on, on earnings, but the, there's no way in hell that the buy side is low enough if we go into an actual recession because we have not seen a recession priced in the financial markets. And we have a dozen indicators that are confirming that. So that would suggest a lot more downside or or a significant downside risk to to to, to equities and maybe risk assets. Yeah, absolutely. So, Brian, if you can pull up this uh, one more chart, uh, financial conditions remain uncomfortably loose. This is a chart I've, I've shown on the program before. Um, and it, what the chart shows is the blue line is the Goldman Sachs Financial Conditions Index. We need to unpack that uh, for those of you who just look it up. Um, those who don't know to look it up, please. Uh, the red line just shows the S&P 500's next 12 months earnings yield. So taking that earnings number, that earnings estimate, uh, dividing it by price. And then the blue line just shows the average corporate uh, credit um, yield spread, or so the average um, credit spread uh, for for the broader uh, U.S. Uh, credit market, um, and what you can see with those those dotted lines connote are sort of you know where we are today, just sort of relative to prior cycles, and you know and with the, the the sort of the the solid lines denote is where we were at the lows of the 2002 2000 and 2002 market cycle. And the reason I sort of highlight that is because again, that was the shallowest recession in U.S. history, mm. minus 30 basis point decline in peak to trough GDP. 
And so if you're thinking about that as being sort of, okay, if we go into the softest of soft landings ever, we still have a long way to go in terms of tightening financial conditions, in terms of getting the market to a cheap enough valuation to make it broadly supportive to buy, and ultimately for credit spreads to blow out to make, make credit broadly supportive to allocate to. So um, just again, we have another set of indicators that we'll unveil to our, our, our subscribers of 42 Macro on Friday. But um, just, just looking at this particular statistic, stock market, credit market, broader financial conditions, nowhere near pricing in an even soft landing, softish yeah. landing. That that's that's really concerning. Um, and Tim from Long Island brings up this point um, from the RV site. Would you agree that investors are not understanding how fast this market can drop given the environment? Six to ten percent drop in a matter of days or weeks. Love to get your thoughts if you agree on that. I'll just switch it a little bit and say, is the market still vulnerable to that sort of really quick downside move, or because there's so much talk about inflation and maybe an awareness that these earnings estimates haven't caught up? Will it feel like more of a grind lower? Yeah, the market is actually less vulnerable now to an exp expeditious decline than it had been in the most recent couple of months. Um, and part of the reason for that is if you sort of look at our volatility analysis, which looks at deviations and skew uh, relative to the trend and deviations in the volatility risk premia, we've seen a sort of a lot of um, risk assets in particular, U.S. equities sort of go from what we call the correction probable quadrant, where you have a significant depressed, uh, depressed, significantly depressed skew significantly um, discounted um, applied volatility discount to something that's much more middling and, and sort of um, tolerable from the perspective of immediate term risk. So um, we would disagree that the market is sort of, you know, increasingly uh, set up to have an expeditious decline, but that doesn't mean it's not going to go where it's going to go with the course of the cycle. Um, you know, if you look at our base case scenario, and this has been our base case scenario since, since March, our subscribers will confirm that, um, which is 3,200 to 3,400 in S&P. Um, if you look at 3,200, that's down um, roughly about, you know, it's called 17% from here. 3,400 is down about another 12% from here. And if you look at our fair value math in terms of the net liquidity analysis that we do, the actual fair value for the market by the end of the year is somewhere close to 2,900. I don't think we're going to get to 2,900 before the Fed pivots ultimately, but I do believe down 12% to 17% um, over the course of the next couple of quarters is very reasonable for the S&P 500. Yeah. That's really important for people to sort of get get their head around and also, you know, mean test against what their trading perspective is. And we'll talk about that because short term, you know, there may be some opportunities or some way to think about this, but longer term. And if you if you need that money in a shorter term point of view, you don't have it to lose. That's going to really change your perspective too. always got to plug in that time horizon. But interestingly, Darius, um, that sort of scenario, I think, is going to continue to put pressure on risk assets. And that is something that's going to have reverberations in the crypto markets as well. We know that that the risk off environment that we've seen has, uh, there's been a lot of pain in crypto because of that. Raul just sat down with Sam Bankman Freed, the head of FTX. Many of you may know him. If you don't, he's really emerged as a white knight these last few weeks, providing capital uh, to some firms who are really struggling to get through this crypto downturn, crypto winter, if you want to call it that um let's have a listen to a clip from that conversation oh certainly there is a lot of dislocation and there are a lot of you know potentially really good um you know plays that that, that one could make here if 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 you had infinite capital backing up you know that and of course no one has infinite capital backing up anything um but you know there are still good plays if you have like significant but finite amounts of capital and um uh and so i think that you know, one of the things we've been thinking about the most here is just like, you know, given everything that's going on, 
Like, what should we be doing? Like, what is, um, where is it most important that we're deploying our capital right now? And what's what's your answer to that? Yeah. So one piece of this, and and one of the pieces I think has gotten just the most attention, um, has been looking at places where, um, I where basically you have, I. Like, like, like the sort of classic place that you want to look at is something that like would be totally fine except for a really nasty short-term liquidity crunch, right? The closer you are to that sort of like ideal, the closer you are to a place where from every perspective, it's that's where cash should be deployed, right? Both from, from the perspective of like, is there a good investment opportunity there? Probably, but more importantly, from the perspective of like, can you bail out some customers, bail out a company? Um, and and stop contagion from spreading in a way which is basically permanent, right? Because it's not like a business that had to go under. Like this is just like, you know, there was going to be effectively an economically inefficient um, crunch in a business because of short-term conditions. So that sort of is a platonic ideal that we're looking for above everything else. And of course, nothing is a platonic ideal, right? Like everything is actually nuanced. And, you know, everything at the end of the day, um, it, it, it's all shades of gray and, you know, we understand that and we're not sort of like looking only at perfect systems. So fascinating to hear from somebody who is in such a pivotal role right now. We're going to look back at this historically and it's going to be super important. So really interesting to get his thoughts. Um, he and Raul talked a lot about the future for digital assets, what that will look like on the other side of this turmoil. The full interview is available on the crypto tier on our website. Um, it's going to release on Friday. And remember, that is free to everyone. All you need is an email to sign up and register um, for that tier. So go ahead and do that um, if you're interested in hearing from Sam. We're going to take another quick break to hear a word from our partners. We'll be right back with more of the day's top analysis on the Real Vision Daily Briefing. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. Darius, I know you've been watching the price action um, oh, in yeah. Bitcoin and Ethereum. It really has been tracking those risk assets. I mean, does it seem like a floor is forming here or given that expectation for where the S&P might end up or the fact that there's still significant downside risk, do we still need to be worried about the crypto space? Yeah, I mean, look, I mean, since we you know pivoted out of crypto at the beginning of December of last year, We've seen several transitory floors emerge in, in things like Bitcoin, Ethereum, et cetera, only to see another 30, 40 percent decline in the you know, subsequent you know, four to six weeks. Like, is this a durable bottom in risk assets with the Fed where, you know, we're not even close to the, the bottom of the growth slowdown? We're not even close to the Fed pivot? Probably not. I mean, it's very unlikely that it is. It could be, but very unlikely that it is. So just sticking with the sort of base case math um, that we highlighted earlier for the S&P, you know, if you translate something like 3,400 on the S&P, um, you know, down 12%. That's some, that's roughly around 16750 for Bitcoin, um, just on a correlation weighted basis, doing the math on the betas and everything. Um, if you go to 3200 on S&P, that's somewhere around 15100 uh, for Bitcoin. And then lastly, if you sort of get to that fair value net liquidity target that we have for December 31st on the S&P, um, that's somewhere around 12700 for Bitcoin. So could we see Bitcoin, you know, create a transitory floor at each of those three prices? Sure, sure why not? And maybe twelve thousand seven hundred is the durable bottom, 
or something close similar between 15,000, 12,700. But again, to me, it's not about what the price is. It's about what the next series of macro catalysts are. And if you look at it on a trending basis, on a go forward basis, it's still very negative. Um, the, ne the next series, we're not anywhere close to a series of, you know, significantly and sustainably positive macro catalysts. And until we get to that point, you know, every rally is a sell across basically every risk asset. Yeah. Um, Paul E., I want to get to some questions. Paul E. on the exchange. And we touched on this before, but uh, asking, in your opinion, what effect is the China reopening Ha or not reopening is the case, maybe having on commodity markets. We talked about oil before, and you really think this is one of the main factors impacting oil. Um, is, is it across commodities? And how do we balance that with the sort of supply constraints we're seeing in, in some of these? We've got radically wide or divergent forecasts when it comes to oil. I think is, isn't City at 65 and JP Morgan at like 380? I mean, it's so confusing to figure out what's going on. How are you, how are you thinking about the commodity space, Darius? Yeah, like I said, I mean, I'll just be brief here, but you know, I think the the move in, most recent move in energy and markets, and you're seeing it in ag. I mean, ag is trading like a, you know, former, you know, <laughs> pump and dump penny stock and uh, industrial metals have been trading even worse. Um, you know, for, for months now. So, um, you know, we definitely think the China reopening premium that had been broadly priced into the, you know, four curves of every commodity is now getting just reset. I mean, this sort of concept that China was going to move beyond zero COVID and stay and remain open and continue accelerating um, is just sort of, you know, it's now it's now just a less a lower probability event, just given the rise in case counts and then renewed commitment out of, of President Xi. Um, you know, so in terms of, you know, what this might ultimately mean from an inflation perspective, Obviously, you're going to get the food and energy uh, price inflation uh, knocked out of the, the 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 market. But you know, one thing I will say about that one, it's I think that's very positive. There's no question about that. Um, crude oil going from let's call it 120 to 90 to 80, or you know wherever it settles out here, uh, is very positive. The the it, the the problem is that it's not all positive. You know, they still have to discount the fact that China having fits and starts, you know, sustainably means that this sort of supply chain disruption episode mm -hmm. that we've been dealing with for the past couple of years. It's going to remain ever present and ongoing. Um, you know, one thing I thought was pretty, um, pretty gnarly in that, in that May CPI report that we got back on June 10th was the reacceleration in core goods inflation. Mm -hmm. And we saw core goods inflation go from 0.8% on a three month annualized basis to 1.8% on a three month annualized basis, right? We were supposed to be past, you know, peak, you know, goods inflation moving into goods deflation. And that was going to be a theme for 2022. And it's now moving in the wrong direction. And part of the reason it moved in the wrong direction, obviously, in the month of May is because China was, was you know, significantly locked down. So this is not going to be a sort of linear straight shot where you can just price out any terminal Fed funds rate expectations associated with the very elevated food and energy prices. Because, again, you think about it from the core inflation side of the equation, core PC, which is what the Fed cares about. You know, we're actually moving in the wrong direction. Yeah, it's it's the, it, we've been saying before, and it's really worth underscoring here. It's a really, really challenging macro environment. I mean, you know, we've got um, things like the supply chain issue and, and COVID still reeling in China. Very hard to quantify that. Very hard to forecast what's happening with that. I'd say the same thing when it comes to, you know, we mentioned agriculture. We've got another question about that from Paulie on the RV site about what's going on with wheat and ag in light of the famine forecast. So, you know, you mentioned we've seen really volatile moves in that, but we've still got this geopolitical backdrop where there, there are questions and pressures on supply of, you know, some of these basic crops. Yeah, I mean, look, in, in full disclosure, you know, we exited all of our long energy and ag positions, um, you know, two to three weeks ago, or pick, pick, your, pick your exposure. But um, with the, and the reason we dumped that is not because we thought China was going to have a fit and start 
situation to get priced into the market. It was really just a function of our, our market signaling process. You know, the probability of deflation uh, from a MAC market regime perspective started to rise in the middle of last month um, and started to rise pretty substantially. And so in our opinion, that meant that we were sort of very late innings in the market's ability to price in higher and higher energy prices, higher and higher ag prices. Obviously, industrial metal prices have been shot for dead and left for dead. Um, so in our opinion, you know, that was just a risk management decision based on the probabilities changing. But ultimately, we're starting to see a lot of the carnage um, come through for fundamental reasons. It's so interesting. And by the way, if, if anyone's interested in in what's happening in the ag space, um, I'm we're, we're catching up with Sean Hackett. I'm going to talk to Sean Hackett, who really follows weather patterns. This is another, uh, another aspect of this. So you have the geopolitical issue. You have the economic macro factors of deflation that um, that Darius just mentioned. And then you have these weather patterns that are also at play in ag. Ag is really complicated space. Yeah. Um, so super interested to hear what Sean has to say to lay on top of that um, and how that might affect a lot of these crops. It's it's the area where he specializes. Um, so keep an eye out for that. I, I Full disclosure, can't remember if it's live or if we're turning it around for taped, but um, but we'll be sure to communicate that. So you, so anybody who's interested in ag, you're going to want to keep an eye out for that Sean Hackett um, one interview. Quick, uh, one quick thing on ag and, and commodities in general. I mean, unless you really know what you're doing about in any particular market or you're sort of you know following the, the guidance of someone who actually does know what they're doing in a particular commodity market, nine times out of 10, it does not behoove you to speculate on singular commodities. You know, what typically happens is geometric returns are much lower in individual commodities relative to a broader basket of commodities. That volatility drag is significantly higher uh, in individual commodities relative to, um, you know, to broader baskets of commodities. So when you're investing in things like ag, you, be, you do well. You maybe have lower returns in the very immediate term, but you do well to stick with things like DBA, the broad agriculture ETF, as opposed to trying to speculate in sugar, wheat, you know, et cetera, et cetera, because you're going to get whipped around by these weather cycles storage cycles, all these different cycles that are extremely hard, you know, very the top global macro hedge funds in the world are struggling to, 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 to get their arms around. Absolutely. Fantastic point, Darius. Want to squeeze a couple couple more in. Adam uh, in Red Bank asking, uh, what do you think about a short-term trade in bombed out tech? I, I wanted to ask this one because everyone's looking for opportunity. This is what I was talking about, time horizon. And thank you for specifying short-term, Adam. Uh, everyone's trying to look for opportunity uh, in this environment. Do you go for something like that, um, Darius? It sounds like it's it, you've got to be super agile if you do. We, we, or do you just sell every rally that that we're looking at in equities? No. Well, you don't sell every rally. You use the probable range process that we built to to help you figure out when to time those sales. And it, coincidentally, the ten-year nominal treasury yield, thirty-year nominal treasury yield are, are both oversold. Um, and Nasdaq is you know within you know thirty, forty basis points of being overbought. On our probable range. So, from a short-term perspective, the worst possible thing you can do in our process is chase tech here. Um, you know, that's how. That's just that wouldn't be a good risk management decision. Just betting on the probabilities. I mean, can't go higher. You know, I don't think I've, I'm not telling the market what it can and can't do. But certainly, from a probability perspective, this would be a very, very inopportune time to chase tech. The time to chase tech was when nobody wanted it a couple of weeks ago. Um, if you were going to play for the shorter-term balance, but actually, this leaves me with my final chart, Brian. If you put up the uh, FOMO, uh, is even more common. Um, mm -hmm. I did a big deep dive uh, for 42 micro subscribers uh, about the history of bear markets, you know, particularly all the major bear markets of the previous 100 years. And there was a few key takeaways. One, um, you know, you always get these, you know, massive, you know, relief rallies throughout the process. Um, and I've been using the 2000 to 2002 episode as, a, as the most relevant analog to where we are today, just given the starting point of valuation and the 
low leverage in the economy that suggests we're likely to have a very net mild recession if we if we do achieve a recession. But anyway, that green bar in the middle of the, the, the green up arrow just shows what the size of the sort of fourth bear market rally um, in that process. So the market declined 28 percent you know, from the March of March 2000 high to wherever that uh, local low was prior to that, that green bar, that green up arrow. The green up arrow was up 19 percent from that local low. So you could have got your face completely ripped off if you shorted those local lows. However, from the peak of that local, local high after, on the other side of the green, uh, the green arrow, market was down another 41% to its ultimate um, decline. And so this is the key point I'm making is that there's all this, you're going to get so much pressure throughout any bear market to sort of, you know, buy, you know, buy the dip, buy the dip, buy the dip, buy the dip. And then you're going to get even more pressure at these local highs to chase the dip, chase the dip, chase the rip, chase the rip, chase the rip. And ultimately, if you don't know where you're headed from a macro risk management perspective, you're going to blow yourself up in a bear market, you know, doing these kind of short-term ordeals. So in our opinion, just, just stick with the macro. Super important, super important advice, Darius. Thank you so much for that reminder. Got to be careful out there. Um, that's it. We're out of time. I wish we had more. So we got some good questions, but keep them coming. We'll make sure we get to them next time. Darius, thank you so much. Thanks to all of you uh, for watching. The Daily Briefing will be back same time tomorrow with Andrea Seno Larson, who has uh, Jeff Snyder. That'll be an interesting deep dive. And if you missed it earlier, check out our Crypto Unwrapped, our latest episode. Uh, it was live earlier today. It's a deep dive into the major stories happening on the crypto side of the world. It airs live every Wednesday, 10 a.m. Eastern, 7.30 in Mumbai and 10 p.m. in Hong Kong. Take care and good luck out there, everybody. What's up, revolutionaries? Thanks for tuning in to the Real Vision Daily Briefing. For more content like this, head over to realvision.com and get unfiltered access to the very best, brightest, and biggest names in finance. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com.